0: Hello and you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Today I am delighted to be joined by Murray Cahill, who's an adjunct professor at NUI Galway and former keeper of antiquities at the National Museum of Ireland. Murray has a particular interest in ancient gold and we're going to talk about all that glitters today. Um, Murray, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Thanks for joining me.
1: Well, thanks Neil, I'm delighted.
0: Uh, Murray, I I suppose it's a bit... You know, it's almost a little bit of a cliche, isn't it? Anytime you kind of excavating where the general public can come up for a chat, there's always somebody comes along and goes, says, you know, have you found any gold? And, in fact, it's pretty rare, really. I mean, I've only worked on one site where we found gold, um, and that was in County Mayo. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. was at Low Park, a beautiful little piece of filigree. Um, but it, it's, you know... Now and again, gold is perhaps more commonly found, archaeological gold, I should say, is more commonly found kind of accidentally, isn't it? Like in the case of Tully Donnell. Um, What sort of experience... Like, have you ever... As somebody who's particularly interested in gold, have you actually found any on the site? And uh, what should the general public do if if they come across if they're lucky enough to find some?
1: Well I can't tell you how many cis burials and pit burials I've excavated in my time and never found any gold. But that is the question when people come to visit you, you found any gold and wouldn't you just love to be able to say you'd found a pair of basket earrings or a lunula in the cyst burial and it would just answer so many questions and solve maybe all kinds of problems about dating. But uh no, nothing like that has happened. But I did have a fantastic experience um one time, it's I can't believe it's almost 20 years ago now, but when we got a report from um the finders of what became known as the New York Horde. So Do York is um near Belmullet, near Gesala in County Mayo. And um, one day I was um just sitting at my desk and the next thing the phone rings and um it was a jeweller in Cork City, reporting the fact that um, somebody had come into to him with, with what he recognised as um, a gold ribbon torque. And he asked then Professor Peter Woodman in UCC who verified it and told the man he should ring the museum and uh, speak to me. So um, we got all of the information, myself and Maeve Sakora, who is now Keeper of Irish Antiquities, headed off for Mayo the next morning at about six o'clock in the morning. and. Um, We arrived down, we met the brother of the man who had been in Cork. Um, The two of them had gone for a walk the previous Sunday on the beach, kicked over a few stones, and what did they find? But three gold ribbon torques. So PJ, uh, the man in question, took us down to the beach, and he was looking around trying to uh, remember which stone had he turned over. And I just looked down, and there between the toes of my Wellingtons was a piece of a ribbon torque about um, maybe 10 centimetres or something like that long. And this was like a week later with the tide coming in and out, in and out in late November. And here it was still there on the beach. So that was truly amazing and just brilliant. So Mave and myself had to set to almost immediately because there was a spring tide due the next evening and we had a really short period of time. Luckily, you couldn't really call it an archeological site in the sense that it was just sand. So we were able to um, dig through the sand and found seven amber beads, two and a bit bronze bracelets, which were Within the same area where the um, three other ribbon torques have been found. So these are ribbon torques of the of the Iron Age, which is confirmed by um, analysis subsequently in the lab in the museum, because we know that in the Iron Age, the gold alloy is very different from the Bronze Age, it has a very high Um, amount of silver in it, so up to 30% silver, 20, 25, 30% silver, so that's a very useful kind of chronological marker and differentiates um, Iron Age gold in Ireland and in Scotland uh, from um, gold of the Bronze Age. And this understanding came about, you know, a few years ago and has actually changed uh, our understanding of Bronze Age gold work in Ireland and Iron Age gold work and has, in fact, shifted um, quite a significant number of objects from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, kind of uh, rebalancing, if you like, the very unusual um, situation that we had in Ireland where we had such a small amount of gold that we could definitely date to the Iron Age, like the Breuter Horde, for example. Mm,
0: that's really interesting. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk a little bit about prehistoric gold in Ireland in a moment, but just stepping outside of Ireland for a moment, and this is a really broad question, so I, <laughs> I apologise to that. But, you know, I imagine, like, when what, what is it that kind of gold starts to become something really important to humanity? Because I imagine there's been, you know, since humans first kind of appeared, like gold's something that you can just occasionally see on the surface naturally occurring. It's in rivers and such like that. But it didn't really you know do we have gold from like stone age context if you like prehistoric context was it ever seen as like a, an item of kind of desire before people could, had the skills to be able to work it
1: well i don't not that i know of um in in europe um the earliest gold gold work that is found in archaeological contexts is from varna in in bulgaria and so it's very very early but it's also unique, not just in Europe, but really in the world, because of its early date. The the amount of gold that is found in um, burial contexts in Varna is, is remarkable. But it's also remarkable because clearly it's a highly developed skill at the point where these gold objects are being deposited in these graves in Varna. They're not the sort of hit and miss efforts of uh, a goldsmith who's trying to find his way with this new material. They clearly know how, go- how to work gold and what its working properties are. Not only that, it's not just a question of um, hammering um, uh, sheet gold, there's evidence of casting and there's evidence of alloying actually there with significant amounts of copper sometimes found in significant amounts of silver. So this is highly, highly unusual. And um, there are beads, there are sort of wire spiral, wire twists, there are pendant like objects. It's quite extraordinary. Um, But then it it just there's no there's no no notion of where it began. As I say, it's already well developed by the time these objects are deposited in these graves. And there's no notion then what happened afterwards. And gold working really doesn't appear until, you know, maybe a millennium or more later in other parts of, of, of eastern europe and then it seems to come um as the the copper age or the Cal- calcolithic if you prefer to call it that and the bronze age develop as that moves in from eastern into western europe um then gold automatically seems to come at the same time so whether the those who are prospecting for metals you know were in some way able to um, identify potential places where both copper, later tin, of course, but uh, and gold as well could be found. There must have been something like that, that they could, you know, uh, sort of a geophysical kind of, or, sorry, I suppose, no, sorry, I mean a geographical sense that they could identify potential locations. They knew what to look for, what looked promising in terms of ore sources because um, certainly by the time, you know, gold-working and bronze and copper and bronze-working reach Ireland, um, it's it's already a very highly developed. Nothing was invented here. And, um, you know, almost certainly the people we call the Beaker people came again looking, prospecting new territories, and uh, it seems to develop somewhat, somewhat from there.
0: And so are we talking around that sort of period then around about 2500 BC 2400 BC that we first start to see uh gold yes. working in Ireland
1: well certainly that's uh, the period when the copper working starts and when um Ross Island mine gets going and um although we don't have very good dating evidence um if we are to judge by Uh, analogy with Beaker Graves in Britain, for example, where they do actually sometimes find gold, like the objects that we know as basket earrings. um, They do find them in burial contexts and they they do have some relatively good dating evidence, unlike here, where um, in spite of one or two antiquarian accounts, we actually have no early gold found in a burial context, good, bad or indifferent. It's extremely difficult to establish any kind of absolute dating. But um, I suppose we are talking maybe around 2,300, 2,200, something like that. That's our best guess at the the moment anyway.
0: That's very interesting. So most of the the gold found in Ireland has either been from hoard deposition or is it just kind of random finds or is that the sort of context?
1: um, There's certainly... Random finds, sometimes in hoards, yes, uh, pairs of gold discs, for example, that will constitute a hoard, a small hoard in itself. We had the um, amazing rediscovery uh, in 2009 of the Kugglebeg hoard from County Roscommon, which uh, consisted of a Lunula and a pair of gold discs. That was an, another very, very um, incredible and exciting. Rediscovery, and I say rediscovery because those objects had originally been found in the 1940s uh, in, cutting, in cutting turf at this place called Coverbeg near Stokestown, uh, but they hadn't been reported at the time. And the finder had, for some reason, passed them on to a, a man he knew, a pharmacist in the town of Stokestown. And they'd been kept in the pharmacy safe ever since until they... Um, pharmacy was broken into one night and the safe was taken and you know the rest is, is history they were eventually found in a skip in Dublin by fantastic investigation that was done by by the guards at the time but there was sufficiently um there was sufficient evidence in terms of records within the family um, of the pharmacy of the pharmacist to show that um the Lulula and the discs had been found together so we know that they are a hoard. That was a really important and significant find because again it showed us that um the gold in the three objects is very very similar um and the most likely thing is that they were uh, being used together concurrently and obviously deposited together then as well although i mean we have to i suppose we have to take a certain amount um you know what in faith um, because we weren't able to actually investigate the fine place. It had completely cut away of, after, you know, 60 or more years. There was no trace of the original fine place left.
0: No, that's it, that's it. And do we know much about or do we have um, a potential sources of gold in Ireland? Uh, uh, were people, were the Bronze Age people, what did the Beaker people Find when they did the prospecting because we know, like for example, copper mining that that's quite well established, isn't it? We know yes. prehistoric copper mines at Mount Gabriel, for example, and ross's Island in County Kerry as well. Yeah. Do we have anything similar for gold, or is it kind of guesswork a little bit? No,
1: we don't. And in fact, you know, from being sort of hopeful at one stage that we might have found a potential source for early gold in Ireland. I suppose I should say that, you know, when we're talking about gold at this period, we're, we're not talking about mines, we're talking about panning effectively for gold. So you're looking for um, aur- uh, auriferous streams where the gold has been weathered out of, you know, a seam of gold that would be way back up the mountains and over time is being washed out, weathered out of these uh, gold seams. and because gold is heavy um, it sinks to the bottom of sands and gravels in in streams and you you can dig it out and you pan for it because it's heavy, it stays in the bottom of the pan. That's just a very kind of simplistic explanation of what gold panning is about. Um, So uh, on the basis of chemical analysis, so I suppose I should say that gold, is never pure in nature. Gold is a natural alloy of gold, silver, and sm- very small amounts of copper. So on the basis of chemical analysis, myself and my colleagues in the gold research team of some years ago, um, especially Richard Warner, who was in the Ulster Museum at the time, and Rob Chapman, who is a geologist specializing in gold in the um, University of Leeds, we thought that we had found a source in the Mooran Mountains Um, because chemically it tied in extremely well with samples of gold from the earliest known gold artefacts, so from the discs and and the lunulae. So on the basis of the quantities of the relative quantities of gold, silver and copper, there seemed to be a good match there. But then in the University of uh, Bristol, um, Chris Standish undertook a new type of study, and he un- he undertook a major study looking at the lead isotopes in the gold and discovered that if you compare the natural gold to the gold in the artifacts, that the lead, lead isotopes just don't match. So that would suggest that the mourns cannot be uh, the source of the early gold. And insofar as this work has developed up to now, the most likely source is actually in Cornwall. And that is really interesting in one way, because, well, in lots of ways, but especially because um, the one thing we also know is that when, you know, the time came to change from just using copper, but to switch to bronze working. So again, an alloy of copper and tin, usually 90 to 10% 10 tin, 90% copper, 10% tin, um, that tin had to be acquired from somewhere. And anyone can see from the number of artefacts that are being produced in Ireland at the time, in terms of axe heads, halberds, and all the rest of it, that some kind of continuity of supply is required, you know, if you're going to have any kind of um, what you might call bronze working industry. So, almost certainly, that supply, although archaeologically this is not proven, but almost certainly it's coming from Cornwall. And so it would seem that. Um, the gold is probably coming from there as well and this is quite extraordinary because even though there have been quite a number of important finds of gold artifacts including several Lunulae finds of gold discs as well in britain over the last uh, few years with relatively little found in ireland at all in fact you could almost say nothing um in terms of new finds uh, for the early bronze age we still have by far the greatest number of artefacts of the early Bronze Age in really the whole of Western Europe. So um, again, it's a question of, of the supply of the raw material. For these goldsmiths who are, obviously what we see is just what has been found, what has been left to be found, and even then only a proportion of all of that. So we have no idea what the, original um, kind of production levels were in terms of the number, overall numbers of objects that could have been produced at any period during the Bronze Age. But the one thing we can say, we can make a judgment from the level of scale of the goldsmiths. At least this is what I would argue anyway. These are not amateurs. These are not, you know, goldsmiths chancing their arm. Um, I'm sure I'll do a bit of gold working today and then I'll go in and do something else for six months that is not the case. These are so highly skilled in many respects. Um, Just to be able to produce gold sheet at the level that they did is a highly developed skill in itself. But to design and perfect uh, the production of a lunula um, along the lines of, we'll say, the lunula that was founded Mangerton in County Kerry um, in the 1840s, which is now in the British Museum. Which I have to say is probably the best Lunula ever produced. To be able to, to produce something at that level of, of skill and expertise, um, where the, um, the decoration from one side of the Lunula to the other is perfectly symmetrical. And in many cases with Lunula, there's actually mirror imaging. So it's that level of perfection. So these are not, as I say, amateurs. They're highly skilled uh, craftspeople in their own right. And um, that suggests to me that there is a continuity of supply that allows these goldsmiths to devote the time and energy to their craft to become um, so highly expert. So there has to be a source. There has to be, you know, it's all... All talk these days about supply chains whether it was ppe or vaccines or whatever it is so we're all very familiar with that well back you know at this period around we we'll say 2000 bc or so there had to be a supply chain too and those were all materials that allowed the goldsmiths to build up their expertise and to maintain their expertise they have to be maintained in some way as well And then you kind of wonder, well, what is the exchange mechanism? What is the quid pro quo? You give me so much gold. Well, I give you so much copper ore maybe uh, or copper metal from Ross Island, perhaps. Or maybe there are other commodities as well that we just don't understand or know about.
0: Absolutely. That's so interesting. And looking at that, I suppose, you know, and, and that's something that's always struck me as well. Every time I go to the National Museum, you know, and you're walking around the prehistoric section. You're always drawn into that the fantastic ore
1: mm. exhibition
0: there of all that Bronze Age gold. So, does Ireland really stand out in Western Europe for the the quantity and the quality of its Bronze Age gold, or how is well,
1: that? It it does in in some respects. Certainly, it does in the early Bronze Age. I think it definitely does. Um, as we go further into the Bronze Age, then things change because um, whereas we say a hundred years ago, uh, Ireland would have been re- regarded maybe as sort of gold central. Um, there have been many, many new finds made. Um, you know, uh, you, you, There are huge amounts of gold in, in Denmark, for example, and they have no sources of gold in Denmark whatsoever. And yet ext- there's extraordinarily fine gold work um, in Denmark. If you look at Iberia, if you look at france um again absolutely amazing uh gold work being produced uh, there as well there's somewhat less in germany relatively speaking less in, in italy but um in even in britain over the last 20 years or so there has been a very significant number of uh finds uh sometimes of quite extraordinary things and that has again sort of balanced or rebalanced this kind of perception of Ireland as the almost the only place in, in Europe producing significant quantities of gold in the Bronze Age. It was never really true. It just seemed that way. But we can definitely take a different view of that now because of all the important finds that have been made in more
0: recent years. That's very interesting indeed. And of course, you know, it's looking at these Bronze Age objects and such, it's all a question of survival, isn't it? I mean, gold is a very reusable metal. So I imagine yes. we don't know what has been lost in any one country either and recycled. For example, Italy, the Roman Empire was hugely gold dependent. So you imagine oh. there was a lot of reuse of golden yes. objects as they were found, yep. possibly. Well, um,
1: gold is, I suppose, um, important in in, in two ways because it doesn't corrode it doesn't tarnish I mean it can get a bit dull okay but that's easily enough remedied so it's it survives it survives in the ground in almost any conditions and you know um sometimes it will come out of the ground if you're lucky enough to see it um as as good as the day it went in and like the Tully Donald Hoard which you um uh, mentioned uh, which was found about, will it be three years ago now, coming up this summer, um, those bars are as bright and as goldy as the day they went, they went into the ground. Um, so it, it doesn't corrode, it doesn't tarnish. And that probably is one of the things that made it so uh, powerful in, as a commodity and um, as something that um, ancient people kind of almost revered in some way. Um, it's seen as being uh, something that relates to the to the sun too, of course, because uh, the sun is that other kind of a, immovable object in the sky that, you know, all life depends on. Um, so that's why there is this close association between uh, gold and the sun as well. But the other thing that you mentioned, which is very important, is that, of course, it can be remelted and recycled endlessly as well. So. Um, we have no idea you know, how much of that happens. But it's an interesting point from a technical perspective as well in terms of trying to uh, determine what the sources of gold uh, may be. Because in the early Bronze Age, uh, we know that, we're fairly certain anyway, that the gold that's being used is the natural alloy as it came out of the ground in whatever way that was achieved. Um, Whatever way it was recovered, but towards the end of the um, of the of the early Bronze Age, they actually start to modify the alloy, the natural alloy by adding copper to it. So as you move then through the Middle Bronze Age and into the Late Bronze Age, um, you'll have more and more melting and remelting and recycling, uh, gathering of gold from different places. Perhaps we know that, even we say in the hoard that was found at Downpatrick. Uh, where we have Irish objects together with fragments of objects that came from either France or from Iberia. So there is some importation, perhaps, of raw material, which is then subsequently melted down, and objects that we would regard as of Irish type are then produced. So it's 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 a highly complicated scenario, you know, um, where, in fact, you know, we have little or no evidence, no evidence I could say whatsoever for the sources of gold in Ireland in the late Bronze Age. Now there are sources in Ireland that could have been used, perhaps, but we can't show that, we can't demonstrate that archaeologically. What we do know is that once we come into the late Bronze Age, say from about 1300 BC or so, that highly significant quantities of gold are available because the nature of the objects that are being produced changes and the amount of gold that is being devoted to one object is so enormous. You know, we get objects that are maybe um, 300 grams, 500 grams. Um, in In the later stages of the Bronze Age, we have objects that weigh a kilo and we have records of ones that weighed well over a kilo. They no longer survive because so much was melted down in the 18th and 19th centuries. But in order to produce objects of that type, again, because they are highly skillfully made artefacts. So it's not a question of goldsmith gets a massive um, amount of gold handed to him and, you know, make something out of that. There is a there is a reason for devoting huge amounts of this precious raw material into one artefact because that meant something symbolically in terms of the culture of the period. Now, what that precisely meant, I'm not too sure. But the gold supply was very steady, I imagine, and um, very reliable, because otherwise you would not have objects like this being made and and produced. And that's not just in Ireland, because, um, again, we see very significant amounts of gold being used to make artefacts If we just look at flange twisted torques, for example, um, you remember um, the beautiful torque that was found in Fermanagh not so long ago, um, of very significant weight. But you will find objects of that type, not just in Ireland, but in Britain, you'll find them in France and you'll certainly find them in Iberia. So you get some extraordinary hoards of um, very significant quantities of gold in them as well. I think, Um, If I remember correctly, the hoard that um, survives from Galicia in Spain, at least half of it does anyway, was found in the 1940s, and they reckoned that there were 30 kilos of gold in this hoard from a place called Caldas de Reyes, but only about 14.6 kilos of that hoard actually has survived. And if we look back into the 19th century and think about the hoard that was found in uh, the railway cutting at Mohan in County Clare in 1854. We know that when um, much of the gold as could be collected for display in the Royal Arch Academy at a meeting in June of that year was gathered together that it there was 11 pounds of gold. So I think that's five kilos. Um, but undoubtedly there was much more in that hoard that has been lost. Um, couldn't be gathered up at the time. A lot would probably melt it down. So we don't know exactly how much uh, the Muhon hoard weighed. The, the fi- figure of five kilos is the minimum amount that that hoard uh, contained. So that is a huge quantity of gold as well by, by any standard.
0: And that's probably the most famous, I would say, or the the most re- kind of recognisable um gold hoard that has been discovered. Can we talk a little bit about it? Um, it was found, wasn't it, in the middle of the 19th century, during?
1: Yes, it was found around the 16th of March in 1854 when um, the uh, railway was being built between Limerick and Ennis. And um, it's it's hard to be absolutely certain about what happened uh, because nobody was there at the time to, to record it. And the records that were made subsequently some of them are not entirely reliable and I have to say that quite extraordinarily the newspaper accounts of the time are very sparse considering the significance of the hoard. There were no um, national museums of any description, there were no archaeologists really at that time either, so there was no investigation done. Not even the railway company seems to have undertaken an investigation itself. Either to uh, discover what had been found, to claim what had been found, which I find quite extraordinary, but the finders of the of the hoard who are named in one of the newspapers as um, three particular men from the locality. One of whom, perhaps the most famous of them, is a man called Daniel Gregan, another man called Paddy or Patrick Hanine. Um, third one, I can't quite recall what his name was, and the fourth one just went by another. So he didn't even get his surname recorded. But um, it seems that uh, they just seemed to share out the hoard amongst themselves. And they kind of took to the roads into Newmarket and Fergus, to Ennis, to Limerick, and sold what they could to um, jewelers there who would buy um, gold at its kind of bullion price, whatever it was per ounce at the time, maybe three guineas or possibly up to four guineas, something like that. So the news did spread and a number of uh, collectors, dealers, antiquarians um, made their way to Limerick At this stage, the material had started moving, the objects started moving. A lot of them found their way to Dublin, to various hordes. And it was from jewelers in Dublin that Dr. Todd, who was a member of the academy, collected as much as he could and brought it uh, to one of the academy meetings in June 1854. So this was even three months later. And he um, exhibited the 11 pounds or the five kilos of gold that he had gathered up. that didn't mean that the Academy was in a position to acquire that much. In fact, they didn't acquire anything until several years later. Although the government, through the Lord Lieutenant, had given them a special grant of £150 um, to purchase material from the hoard And again, the Academy records are not very clear on this. It proved very difficult for them to, to spend this money. They subsequently Took up a public um, subscription um, and maybe collected something in the region of about 200 pounds or so. So eventually Dr. Todd himself and another member of the academy, Mr. Halliday, had actually made some purchases themselves. Um, And a famous Dublin uh, goldsmith and jeweller, James West, uh, one of a long line of a family of uh, Dublin goldsmiths and jewelers, he had acquired a very significant amount of material from that hoard but between the jigs and the reels and all kinds of comings and goings between the academy mr west and its own two members dr todd and mr halliday only um, a very small number of artifacts were purchased in the end i think it was 13 eventually at the time were purchased and um mr west was left with a significant number of objects, including about 46 bracelets from the hoard on his hands. And this was as late as 1858. And to this day, I cannot figure out or find out what happened to the material that was left on Mr. West's hands. Did he melt them down and just use them, um, you know, refine the gold and use it as a raw material in his own workshop? Did he sell it off? Who knows? The extraordinary thing is, is that the British Museum was actually able to acquire material from the um, Muhan Horde at an earlier date than the Royal Irish Academy was. And that was because the then Earl of Enniskillen, who was a big collector of fish fossils, believe it or not, but also of coins and some antiquities, he had acquired um, a number of bracelets from the Horde and uh, he sold those in 1856 to the British Museum so that's why what's left of the hoard in terms of the original artefacts is split between the National Museum in Kildare Street and the British Museum in London and the rest is gone but fortunately Dr Todd and we really have to acknowledge his role in this he um was determined that because he knew that, you know, all of the objects that he had gathered together uh, for that occasion in June 1854 would not survive. He had casts made. So there is a collection of casts of hundreds of the bracelets, several hundred bracelets that he managed to acquire at that time. Otherwise, we would have practically no uh, true notion of what the Muhan horde consisted of. So it was a most unusual hoard because it has a unique set of collars which are only found in that hoard. These collars made a very heavy sheet of approximately C-section with slightly developed uh, terminals and a little bit of decoration on some of them, very badly worn, which tends to suggest that these artefacts had uh, been worn um, on quite a number of occasions but a huge number, an unknown number, but several hundred gold bracelets of different sizes. All of the basic kind of Irish form of late Bronze Age gold bracelet, which is a solid bar with slightly expanded terminals. Um, Why uh, so many bracelets were required, how they were all gathered together and how they came to be deposited and in what circumstances, with what kind of ceremony, or was it all done in secret, you know, at that time when they were deposited sometime in the Late Bronze Age? We don't know. It is significant, though, that even in one of the very early um, newspaper accounts, it was suggested that um, the finds were associated with a fallout with one of these ancient cooking places and fieldwork done by the Discovery Programme when they were working in the area on the Great Hill Fort at Muhan, uh, found evidence of um, a follockia very close to the uh, lake at Muhan. The, the railway goes along just alongside it. But they found evidence in one of the follockfia of um, interference in the top of the mound. Um, so this might suggest that this is the site. I don't know why the railway men would have been digging in the That's still a mystery if this was the site why they would have been digging there in the first place because it really wasn't in the way of the railway at all but if that is the site then it is interesting because you were saying about earlier about gold not being found in excavations but funnily enough insofar as we have evidence at all at all in ireland for gold being found in excavations a number of artifacts have actually been found in philactophea in the cooking places now they're not terribly significant objects but we do have um one of these um gold foil covered penannular rings a ring with base metal covered with gold foil found at uh, one of the fog fields excavated by um O'Kelly at killeans in county cork back in the 1950s another one was found at a site excavated in more recent times in county wicklow and there it, there's evidence that um, a gold bracelet was found at a site in County Mayo at a fault via as well. So that is curious in in terms of Muhon, but there is still a great deal that we don't know. And I'm hoping that eventually um, if when I get a chance to do a bit more research, that it may be that I will be able to find something in the original archives of the railway company that might show something. Because can you imagine? any, they, these were commercial companies building the railways at the time, how they could ignore such a discovery on their own land, land that they had bought from large Inch, to put the, the railway through this particular part of Clare. How they could actually ignore it and let it go is amazing. But the other extraordinary thing is that Daniel Gregan sold what he had taken of the hoard and he went with his family, his brothers and his cousins. And we know this because we actually know um, his descendants who live in New Zealand now. He actually went to Australia and worked in the gold fields in Australia. He then heard about um, uh, gold discoveries in, um, in New Zealand and he took his family to New Zealand where he and his brothers worked in the gold fields there and eventually bought a farm. And curiously enough, some years ago, his great granddaughter, Amanda Gregan, came to Ireland to work for a few years and ended up working in the depart- in the marketing department of the National Museum and gave us all her family history. The other man, Paddy Hanning or Paddy Hannon, perhaps, he also emigrated to Australia and he became really famous as a fellow with a a nose for gold. He got involved in the gold fields there, and he actually discovered, and this is um, well known in Australia and well recorded, he discovered the gold fields at Kalgoorlie. And in Kalgoorlie town, there is actually a statue, uh, a sculpture of of Paddy Hannan.
0: I was there. I was there. I didn't know about the Muhan connection, though. I, I saw that. I, I worked yeah. for a year in um, Western Australia. We were yeah. surveying sites. Yeah, that's incredible. And not
1: only that, he's buried in Melbourne Cemetery. And not only is he buried there, but Jim Quinn, who found the Arda Horde, some you know, a few years later at Ardan County, Limerick, he actually went to Australia and he's buried in Melbourne Cemetery as well.
0: God, that's incredible.
1: So that is incredible. But you know something that I discovered when I was uh, looking for information on the Mohan Horde and I've, I, I, the last few years, I am so in love with um, digital newspaper archives, but It's extraordinary the amount of reports on the gold diggings in Australia that are in those papers of around the 1850s. So it must have been known to people like Daniel Gregan and others that... You know, rather than going to the United States, for example, which you might imagine in the immediate post-famine era, people would have been more inclined to go and they might have had relations or family who had already gone to the United States. Um, but they actually went to Australia. Maybe they were reading about 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 the gold um, finds there, you know.
0: I was doing some surveying out kind of around, not far from Kalgoorlie, kind of out in the goldfields kind of direction. And um, there's one of the villages we went to, the name escapes me now. Uh, it was one of them, you know, it was kind of like a 16 or 17 hour drive from Perth. And it all kind of gets a bit fuzzy after that point. Yeah. But I remember seeing this place and it was so desperately sad in some ways. It had been, uh, there'd been a gold finder, and it had all just been at the surface kind of thing. But, you know, there'd been a huge gold rush on the back of this fine because it was a significant amount a man had found a certain amount put it in the horse's saddlebags went to the nearest kind of place and everyone was like oh my god you know um and the cemetery there is full of headstones with irish names on and and they've done the, the local community there have done you know a, a, quite a good um graveyard survey and they had person's name and the cause of death and it was all mining accidents alcoholism you know people yeah. who'd gone and through re- through the dice kind of so to speak on their life to go all yeah. the way out there to this impossibly remote place in the hope of striking it rich as well it's incredible yeah. to think about those people who found the muhan hard. As you know, who'd already had that high all the way back home, you know, and yeah. then going out there to the desert of Australia, it, it's incredible to think. W- was there a similar gold rush on the back of Muhan? Did people suddenly start getting an interest in going out, digging up monuments, trying to strike no. it rich? No,
1: no, no, there doesn't seem to be anything like that at all. Um, certainly, there, I've never come across any evidence that would suggest that, but you'd you'd wonder, I suppose, in a way, how well-disseminated the information was. I mean, it is in all the newspapers of the time, but they're tiny little reports, and it's the same report that is repeated um, in newspapers from, you know, from Belfast to Kerry and all over Britain as well. So just this tiny few lines, um, but it doesn't seem to have um, caused that at all. There are a few curious stories, all right, about... um, people uh, dreaming about finding gold and then going out and finding gold, you know, the famous story of um, the gold disk that was uh, that was founded Bally Shannon in, in in County Donegal, which is supposed to be from the uh, tomb of a giant, the grave of a giant. And um, that was found in the 17th century, actually. And it's in the Ashmolean Museum now. But that's supposed to be as a result of a dream, you know, being told to go to dig for gold in a certain place. And the man who found um, a single gold disc um, at Castle Treasure in County Cork, uh, this is a disc found in the 19th century and it's in the British Museum now, um, he reportedly said that he had dreamt that if he dug in a certain place that he would found gold and sure enough he found the disc. But I sometimes wonder if maybe that's just maybe might have been a bit of an ex- convenient excuse uh, for digging somewhere. Maybe he shouldn't have been digging, you know, <laughs> because all of this finding of gold in the nineteenth century and the reason why we have so much gold in the in the collections, uh, without any real provenance or any believable provenance in some cases, is because a lot of these t- uh, tenant farmers, you know, with half an acre or an acre. Um, they would have been expected by their landlord to hand up anything that they found, and of course, they didn't. So, you know, we get lots of fines from near Mullingar, near Athlone, um, near Cork, near Waterford, near Kilkenny, whatever it may be. And this is because they would just hightail it into town, uh, into the nearest jeweller where they could realize their asset, get some cash and be gone so that that means that we have very very poor recording in the 19th century it might not have been great anyway but it's very very poor because of this uh, tendency to want to hide effectively and and for poor people you know to find something that would realize um maybe three four five pounds or guineas it's quite an extraordinary amount
0: of money, you know. It's a number of years' salary, almost, so to, yeah. so to speak. I mean, yeah. and especially coming out, you know, looking at Muhan, that's just at the tail end of the famine, you know, or yes, it's absolutely. just during the It's perfectly understandable, I think, for people yeah. to... Looking back, Murray, you know, we were ta- we kind of mentioned it a little. It would be great to, to dig into it a little bit. What can these golden artefacts, the lunula, the at the start of the kind of first appearances of gold compared to the big talks there in in the later Bronze Age and going into the Iron Age. What do these golden objects tell us about the societies that created them? And can it tell us, you know, the different styles of gold jewellery? Does that, uh, you know, does that tell us much about, I suppose, the value of gold and how that might have changed as the Bronze Age progressed? And is there even any hints about religion in there?
1: Yes. You're asking me all the easy questions now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You see, we are really limited in terms of interpretation and understanding because of the fine circumstances. You know, so little of this material has been found in any kind of archaeologically, you know, understandable circumstances where we can see it relating to other things, to sites, to whether those are burials, whether they are workshops, whether they are houses or or whatever they may be. Um, Ceremonial enclosures, I don't mind, it would just be great to find, you know, uh, something that has a real association. And so we're left, I suppose, with an extraordinary body of material of um, exceptional workmanship, exceptional skill, but very much in in terms of each period, a series of objects uh, that are so similar to one another that you have to uh, think of it in terms of, at least I do anyway, that these goldsmiths are only allowed to make certain things. They can have they can use a certain amount of their own individual creativity, if you like, or their artistry, so long as they stick to the rules. So you can make discs, and preferably you make them in pairs, but you decorate them in a certain way. Now, there are, if we talk about discs just for a moment, discs of the early Bronze Age as opposed to the late Bronze Age. Concentric ornament is is huge. Um, You'll see zigzags. You'll see radial ornament. you'll see dotting. Uh, you don't see concentric ornaments like you will see, like concentric circles like you will see um, in the Late Bronze Age or bosses or anything like that. Uh, you'll see, and then importantly, this cruciform uh, motif with radial lines on it as well. So um, I thought, you know, there's an extraordinary similarity when you look at these discs and you turn over uh, food vessel bowls in particular. Uh, whether they're decorated on the bottom or not doesn't really matter. But if they are, fine, that's great. Um, nonetheless, even if you don't see any decoration on the actual base of the pot, when you look at the way the um, pattern of decoration on ceramic vessels is 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 laid out and designed, again you can see very, very similar to the disks of patterning. And I have tried to uh, decipher, if you like, or to understand these in terms of representations of solar imagery and the way that people see the sun um, with the naked eye. on different occasions, different times of the year, in different atmospheric conditions, whether that uh, relates to bright sunshine, to seeing through haze or seeing through mist, uh, seeing in particular the sun reflected in water, the sun going down or over water. All of these things I read as um, uh, interpretations of solar imagery uh, then reflected in the gold discs and in the ceramics as well. Then I thought, how do the lunile fit into this picture? And I had been looking at Scandinavian rock art for a long time, which is a little bit later in date than um, our goldis and but I wondered, you know, there's a very similar outline for a lot of these um, objects that we Uh, interpret as boats on Scandinavian rock art. You also get these disc-like objects like suns. There can be one, there can be two, there can be multiple suns related to these boats. And could we in some way um, associate um, Ljønjøle as a type of solar boat with the discs taking the place of the, the day and the night sun? this would fit very nicely with the mythology that we understand around Scandinavian rock art, for example. You know, the sun goes on a journey from east to west every day, so it rises in the east, it goes across the sky and then down into the night, and that's regarded as a very dark, dangerous place. The sun goes on its journey and it needs to be protected on its journey, so the solar boat is the thing that takes the sun on this journey through the night and brings it back to the dawn. And this becomes a very complicated story with other animals um, being introduced, the serpents which are, you know, danger and the enemy and the horses which again are protective and bring the sun on its journey. We don't have um, as complex a story here insofar as we can interpret it in terms of the gold, but we certainly have elements of that story insofar as I try to interpret gold lunulae and gold discs. And again, if we if we went into the into the late Bronze Age, just you know, uh, by 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 way of comparison, we have lots of artifacts which we don't really know the purpose of, because again, they're not found with burials or in circumstances where, you know, it would help us to understand or to interpret them, but. One of the things that did help was the discovery of the extraordinary hoard found at Ballinescar in County Wexford in 1990 and this was as a result of um, the building of uh, some holiday houses at Nesker, where um, the side of a small hill was cut into in order to make a flat flat area to build these houses and um, all of the topsoil was dumped in the adjoining field then maybe a year or so later Somebody on the far side of Wexford Town was looking for an enormous quantity of um, topsoil to build a garden. And the topsoil was delivered. And as the gardener was checking, he started finding gold objects in the... in in the topsoil and uh, he uh, contacted uh, the museum and we had a fantastic um, adventure down there where we ended up following topsoil from this site uh, to seven different locations and we found um, a pair of the objects which up to then were called boxes and a pair of other sheet gold objects which had been folded in antiquity but which looked like, from what we could see, related to the gold boxes in terms of the decoration, also closely related to the discs that we see on the terminals of the big gold collars, like the ones we know from Glen and Sheen and Gartine Ray in County Clare. There were also two dress fasteners and a bracelet in this hoard as well, so seven objects altogether were found. But the thing is, we know approximately where that hoard was found. We know that this is the area where that was stripped in order to build these houses we know this is where the topsoil was dumped we searched two enormous mounds of soil and as i said followed it all over the county expert. but what we don't know is is that all that was in the hoard was there anything else there we just have no way of knowing but when we made a decision which was a decision that took quite a long time to make. And it it involved all kinds of considerations, including ethical considerations. And that was to unfold two objects that had been folded in antiquity, because we couldn't determine from x-rays or from looking at them inside out, upside down, we couldn't figure out what they were. So we made that decision to unfold them and to see what did they actually um, constitute. That was done by a wonderful conservator, fine metalwork conservator, called Marilyn Hockey in the British Museum in the early 1990s. And that was what revealed not what we actually thought one of the folded objects was, which was a pair of gorgeous terminals. It was actually a complete object in its own right, like a gold bobbin, a bobbin, if you can imagine the type of bobbin that you have in a sewing machine that carries the thread up to the needle. If you can imagine that about six or seven centimeters in diameter, it was one of those. The other two objects were more like the typical gold boxes that we knew uh, from finds from the 19th century, and one which was made in the 19, mid-1970s at ballin in County Kerry. Only one of had been found on, there on that occasion. But the others all exist as pairs, so we had a pair of matched gold boxes and I say that as if boxes was in inverted commas and we had this new gold bobbin and then we unfolded the other object which was folded in four and that turned out to be half a bobbin. A bobbin that had gone wrong in so many ways in terms of its manufacture that the goldsmith decided the only thing he could do was fold it in four, give it a good few whacks of a hammer, and put it in the melting pot, except that never happened. And so we now have this half a bobbin. Everything had gone wrong in its manufacture, from the layout of the design to the formation of the spool, which joins the two halves of the bobbin and, and unites the object. So that set me off on another exploration, and that was to try and determine what these objects were, because now I knew, Well, I never really believed that the boxes were boxes anyway, because you couldn't open and close them. They were shut tight unless you mechanically took them apart. So that set me off on another kind of exploration to try and figure out what the function of these might be. And that led, again, I haven't got time to go into all of it now, but just looking at gold work around the world led to, you know, the idea that these are actually extravagant ear ornaments, that they are ear spools, for want of a better description. You can call them ear reels or ear spools. And, you know, um, I was helped in that by the kind of, I suppose, thing that had swept the Western world as opposed to other parts of the world, whereby people were starting to um, use their own bodies in terms of piercings and um, body decorations in terms of tattooing and all of that. But um, people who were doing what some would regard as very extreme piercings, uh, piercing their earlobes, stretching them so that they could hold artefacts that are up to six, seven, eight centimetres in diameter, exactly the same size as the boxes, in regard to commas, or ear spools from Ballinesker and these other places from Ireland. Now these, in terms of gold artefacts, we don't find them In Britain, we don't find them in France. We don't find them in Scandinavia. We don't find them in Iberia. Um, You'd have to go right over to the Mediterranean to find them, and they will be of later date. So this is very, very interesting because, again, I think of it in terms of, you know, you just don't make these in gold. They must exist in other materials as well. Those materials could be ceramic. They could be wood. They could be stone. So there are a few other objects kicking around in, in collections that um, are possibly the poor man's version of the gold ear spools, but just a little bit more work needs to be done on that. But what is interesting about them is that they copy almost precisely the kind of decoration that you find on the terminals of the gold gorgets. So whereas the gorgets come from Clare, Limerick, North Tipperary, um, you're finding the ear spools, um, insofar as we have provenance for them, you're finding them in Wexford, because there's a wonderful find made um, in uh, the 18th century near Niscorthy, where the two gold ear spools that were founded there are 12 centimeters in diameter. Now, in order to accommodate a 12 centimeter in diameter ear spool in your ear, you have to do one hell of a stretch on your earlobe to fit that into it. But this really tells us something about late Bronze Age people, how they view themselves, how they view their bodies, how they're prepared to manipulate their own bodies, how they're prepared to put themselves through what is almost a I won't call it a surgical procedure, but a procedure that, you know, you you're you're opening up a part of your body. You are possibly um opening yourself up to the possibility of blood poisoning and dying a horrible death, because that can happen. Um you are certainly opening yourself up to the possibility of your earlobe withering over time and becoming a rather ugly looking um, piece of your body rather than something resplendent in your gold ear spools. So um, these objects are also decorated with all of these miniature solar symbols as well, which are the concentric circles with the um, circular or slightly domed or conical bosses. So again, we're finding this continuity, if you like, um of um, this the importance of the sun and its representation on on these artifacts.
0: It's fascinating. It really is. And it makes you think about were there only certain people allowed to have these ornaments? You know, was this like um uh, you know, some kind of like priestly caste, for want of a better word, or or, or was this something that marked status in a, a, in a different sort of way? It makes you really picture the people, uh, and as you say, with those enormous earlobe <laughs> ornaments, it makes me think about other objects too. Like you say, some of these things that have found that you you immediately call lignite bracelets and things right. like that. Maybe they were part of that kind of ornamentation yeah. too. It's absolutely fascinating. And so, Murray, like, you know, if, if we said right at the outset, you know, you have to be incredibly fortunate to find gold. And it's quite often accidentally found, as in the case at Tunnelley Donnell in, in, in Donegal, where the farmer was digging a drain and, and was... Did the You know, did an amazing thing by notifying the National Museum. Um, what is it that, if somebody is incredibly fortunate, what should they do if they see something?
1: Well, I would say definitely the first thing you should do is stand back, don't do anything else. If it's in, still in the ground, leave it there. If you have uh, a local county museum or a county archaeologist, maybe ring them first or ring both the National Museum and your county museum because the most important thing is to get an archaeologist out to the site as soon as possible. Definitely, you know, if you can't think of anything else, you can always ring your local guard station uh, and they will be very pleased to help you. They know what to do. But these days... It's so easy to find out just from your phone or your laptop or whatever, who the right person is to ring. So if you find anything, it doesn't have to be gold. You know, it, it's fantastic if people find something really amazing like the Tony Donald Hoard and have to say that all the people involved in that particular hoard were just brilliant, absolutely fantastic. My colleagues in in Kildare Street couldn't have been happier with um with uh, the way they were welcomed and looked after when they went to Donegal to investigate the Horde. And that has been my um, experience through a very long career in the National Museum as well, always being uh, welcomed and facilitated and helped in every possible way by people all over the country. So the first thing, just to go back to where we started, is ring the National Museum, perhaps ring the County Museum, um, or ring the Garda Shikana and. All of them, or any of them, will help you and advise you what to do. Protect the site, I would say. Stand back and protect the site. Cover it and wait until somebody with just that little bit of knowledge comes along who can really get the best out of what is in the ground because, you know, we have lost so much evidence over so many years because things, these things are found accidentally. And sometimes in the case, we say, when people were cutting turf by hand, you know, the shawl would nearly go through the object because you'd hit something, it would make a sound and then you knew something had been found. Um, So a lot of things may suffer a little bit in the actual finding, but that's just the way it is. We can't predict where the objects are going to be. We can't predict who is going to find them on any given day of the week. Um, But I just think, isn't it wonderful to be that person, to be so lucky? To make that discovery, I'll just tell you one last thing before we finish up. It's common knowledge now because it was in the papers at the time, but one of the finders of the hoard at New York had been lucky enough a few years before to win the lotto. So I said to him, PJ, I said, when this is all over and now you think back, what do you think would be the best thing, winning the lotto or finding gold? Finding the gold, that was the right answer because the money will be gone. But the gold will always be there, so PJ couldn't have said a truer word.
0: That's fantastic, and that's the thing as well. You know, I mean, sometimes people might think that, oh, if it, you know, we tell the museum, we'll never, it'll go away to Dublin, we'll never see it again, kind of thing. But that's so important, isn't it, that these, the the archives are always accessible. You can go and see. Mm. Them and available to researchers. It's available yeah. for people to go and uh, find out more about it as well, so it doesn't just disappear. It, and in the case of Tully Donald, that's there on display in the National Museum, the whole townland, I think, from, from what Dave was telling me came out to see it. Which, like, you yeah. can just imagine the, the joy of that being in your local county museum. Mm-hmm. And you know that these mm-hmm. objects were found by you and your family on your land. What a yeah. wonderful thing.
1: I couldn't tell you the number of times that people have come into the museum maybe from Canada, from Australia, from the United States. Um, They um, are just maybe in Dublin for the day. Uh, They know in their family history that their grandfather or great-grandfather found something in 1930-something, 1920-something. And they think they know that it went to the National Museum. Most of the time it has done, but sometimes, you know, they've been told that, but we have. haven't always been able to locate the object because it went somewhere else, not because we lost it. But I can't tell you the pleasure it has been when somebody just calls in on spec. Is there any chance we could see it? It might be a stone axe. It might be a bronze axe. It might be a little pin or a brooch. And if at all possible, on those occasions, we always go into the stores, into the reserve collection, bring them into the office, get the object up for for them, and show them. And we show them the file. And there may be a letter from their great-grandfather. And I have seen people actually really emotional to see that, to see the object. But when they see the letters and they see the handwriting, they see their um, grandfather's signature or something like that, it's just made their day. It's made their holiday. It's made their trip home. And some people, I remember um, O'Donnell's originally from Donegal, uh, wanted to come and see the Cahach. Which is associated with the O'Donnells, and it was an exhibition, of course, but they considered it their Kahuk, not our Kahuk, their Kahuk. <laughs> and why wouldn't they? You know.
0: Absolutely. That's it. I mean, these objects always have such a human story.
1: Absolutely, and it, that's the best part of it, you know. And that's why, um, you know, uh, discovering about Daniel Gregan, about him going to the Australian goldfields and the New Zealand goldfields, that really kind of completed the circle for me, because how often can we hear about the real story of somebody from that far back? And not only that, and this will be the last thing I'll say, Neil, to see his photograph, courtesy of Amanda, his great-granddaughter was able to provide me with a photograph he was a very old man at the time but to be able to look and see the face of the man who found the muhan Hoard, to me that was just absolute icing on the cake
0: that's absolutely magic or maybe the
1: guilt on the gingerbread would that be a better analogy <laughs> <laughs>
0: perhaps, perhaps. listen mary thank you so much for the time though that, that was fascinating it, was it really was We could talk all day about it it's such an interesting subject thank you mary So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. I really want to thank Murray for all of her time and her insights there. It's absolutely fascinating. All that glitters is gold. Um, I just want to thank you all again for joining me today. We've got some more really nice episodes lined up. That I'm aiming to keep them coming roughly about once a month, although the day can vary a little bit uh, that we release it. Um, We've also got some kind of really interesting projects in development with Abata Heritage as well, so please do uh, keep in touch with us there on the website. We've also got a new mailing list as well, we send out every week, there's a mail every Monday called Monument Monday, where we show one of my favourite sites around the country to go and see, with instructions on how to get there, a little bit of information, lots of nice pictures, so if you're looking for something to enjoy for your Monday tea break, do sign up there, you'll find a link on our website. And, of course, we have our sister podcast, Discover the Stories of Ireland by Abata Heritage, that you could subscribe to on all the different podcast platforms. Uh, do give us a subscribe there. And you'll find that's where you'll find all our audiobooks and audio tours and things like that there as well. Otherwise, I want to thank you again. I hope everyone's keeping safe and keeping well. And hopefully it's not too long before we can get out and start visiting some more sites again. Thanks very much. Goodbye.